Amen. All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, we're, we're excited to be a part of the Colossae family and be a part of what God's doing through the, the Colossae story. Uh, we're excited to launch Beaverton uh, at some point, somewhere during the year. So, uh, you know, we, we do know some of what, we, what we're doing. Uh, we don't know where and when yet. We know who we're following, and he has a plan, and we're excited about that. So uh, if you are one of those people who lives in the Beaverton area, or even if you're not, I'd love to get to know you, but if you are particularly interested and God's maybe been stirring your heart uh, to be a part of that work, of course, I would love to, to get to know you uh, as, as soon as we can. So um, uh, I'd love to chat with you. But Now, you've got to hand it to Justin for being away on the week that we're talking about judgment in the end of the world. Huh, this is a smart shepherd you've got. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I love that. Like, uh, here, meet Matt. <clears throat> end of the world. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday. So, um, as we get into this, I'll, I'll just begin by, by recognizing, as a parent, there are those moments you have when you realize nothing you've said has registered are you with me on that? It's like, for me, the way it goes in my household is, hey, uh, I need you to be ready to go out the door in about five minutes. You, you, re- you got that? Everybody says, yeah, I got it. What they're really saying is, I've got five more minutes to play. Right? I got that. Right? I got that down. And then when you go to them and say, okay, uh, we're going now, they look at you as if you've betrayed them. Right? Like, what are you talking about? What? We can't go now? Like... And then when you rush them out the door, somebody can't find a shoe because there is at least one shoe in every pair that's invisible to the eyes of everybody younger than 10. That's just the way it works. And uh, somebody's in a swimsuit and it's 35 degrees outside because we were playing swimming. Why wouldn't you be playing swimming when you have five minutes to get out the door? And so uh, what has happened in that moment is misunderstanding, right? What has happened in that moment is communication has not occurred, right? There's a clash between reality and expectations, right? Because there's a misunderstanding. And when you read through the Bible, there's all these moments where that kind of dynamic is at play, where Jesus is saying something, and the characters around Jesus are not picking up what he's putting down, right? And so this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and then his disciples is one of those expectations meets reality moments, right? Like, we're heading out the door now, right? Like, okay, and, and, and this time it's grown men that can't find their shoes, right? So, or their sandals or whatever, right? So, uh, and so uh, let's, let's take a look at what Jesus is up to in this passage. So beginning, again, with verse 20, uh, chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or in your midst. Now, uh, this is amazing. It begins with this just honest question. For maybe one of the first times, the religious elite leaders called the Pharisees ask a question apparently without ulterior motive. I think they're asking a legitimate question. When is the kingdom of God going to appear? Now, you have to understand something about ancient Israel and the story that they were living in during this time. That for an ancient Israelite, or a, a, a first century Jew, they would have had an expectation that God was going to bring about all of his promises throughout the Old Testament uh, to bear, right, during a time in which 
God's reign, his rule, would come and permeate all of the earth. And so the Pharisees had the idea that this kingdom, this reign and rule of God, would come all at once. In their minds, it would come cataclysmically, like you couldn't miss it. Right? And if it came, it would certainly mean that the people who were oppressing them, the Romans in particular, uh, would no longer be over them. That they would have been routed out, perhaps violently, from Jerusalem and from the land. And so the Romans are still oppressing. The temple still hasn't been rebuilt. God seems not to be on the throne. Clearly the kingdom has not come in their minds. Right? It's not time to leave yet. Right? And so for them... They're expecting this kingdom, and it would have come in their minds with all these observable signs. The co- there would have been cosmic signs in their minds. Uh, the heavens would have somehow lit up like Vegas, or I don't know what they were thinking. But the point was, Jesus has a response. He says, the kingdom is not coming in ways it can be observed. There will not be this cosmic array. Uh, you won't be able to say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, it is in the midst of you. Now, one of the things that's ironic in the way Luke tells the story is that this conversation that Jesus has with these Pharisees seems to be, in Matthew and Mark, this conversation takes place in Jerusalem, right? In Jesus' final week of life. Luke has it arranged differently. It's on the way to Jerusalem because, of course, if Jesus said it once, he probably said it a dozen times, right? And so here he is having this conversation on the way to Jerusalem just after 10 people with leprosy have been healed. Remember, this was last week, where Jesus is, uh, has healed 10 guys with this socially alienating disease, and he's restored them right, to, to humanity. Uh, he's restored their humanity in a, in a significant way. And when someone with a socially alienating disease is restored and cured, is that not God's activity? Is that not uh, a sign of God's healing presence? Is that not God setting the world to right? In those ten men? Is that not the kingdom? Is that not what Luke had told, told us that Jesus had said he was here to do in Luke chapter 4? To set the captive free? You see, this kingdom is unfolding right before the religious leaders' eyes and they're missing it. And so Jesus' response here is a guardrail for us. He wants to guard us against looking for God's activity, his reign and his rule, his kingdom, if you will, in the wrong place. He wants to guard us from looking in the wrong place for God's activity. So what does Jesus say in response to these guys? Where's the kingdom? When's it going to happen? Don't go looking for the kingdom in the spectacular, is what Jesus is saying, right? Don't go looking for the kingdom in the spectacular and great cosmic events and ways that can be observed. There, There will be a cosmic event at the cross, right? The sky will darken, the earth will quake. But here in Luke... Jesus is saying to them, the kingdom is not coming the way that you think it will. It's not going to come in a spectacular display, right? It kind of gets at our current kind of modern day question, like, if God were real, why won't he just do something obvious, right? right? It's what it, that question is actually getting at is saying, I expect God to live on my terms, where I can live with low risk and have absolutely, absolute certainty, right? As if God were made in our image, right? But actually he invites us into uh, a story of trust, where we actually surrender control. This is backwards to our kind of way of doing things. And so what Jesus says instead is that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Like that guy who just came back praising God for being healed last week. Remember him? 
The kingdom is in his midst. He's been restored to family and to worship and to community. He's experienced the kingdom and you're missing it, Jesus is saying. And so what I want to point out here for us is that we are baptized into a culture that looks for transcendent meaning in the spectacular. We look for meaning in the sensational and the big and the extravagant and the obvious. Let me give you an example of this. Um, uh, it's very normal in, in our culture uh, to spend very little time with your family during the week, during the month, during the year, but to plan a great big family vacation, right? And we load that family vacation up with expectations to accomplish all that we've missed out on for the last year, right? And we spend all the money, and we uh, have all the expectations, and this is why you spend your entire vacation fighting, right? Because you've front-loaded that experience with all these expectations to accomplish what can only be done in the ordinary, everyday rhythms of relationship and life together, right? And so not that vacations are bad. Family vacations are wonderful, and they're great moments. But it's the moments of regular ordinary life that bond us over time. Relationships aren't built in the spectacular and the grandiose. Relationships are built in everyday rhythms of everyday life, habits of paying attention and serving and playing together. And Jesus is saying that the inbreaking rule of God isn't somewhere else. It isn't this spectacular emotional high you have to go searching for. It's in your midst. And so we have to be careful not to be seduced by the spectacle. We live in a culture of spectacle. It says, don't miss it. So if that's the wrong place to look, where's the right place to look, right? Where does Jesus say to go looking for the activity of God? He says it's in the midst of you. There's three things I want to point out in terms of what that means. First of all, he's saying that you ought to go looking for the activity of God, first of all, in the ordinary. If it's in your midst, then it's not out in the extraordinary, beyond your grasp. It's in the grasp of the everyday, normal, ordinary rhythms of life. For the kingdom to be in our midst means that it moves in ordinary ways. Gospel stories uh, are full of ordinary people encountering Jesus in, in, in transforming ways without any drama. Like I love in Mark chapter 1, I believe, uh, Peter's mom or his mother-in-law gets sick and bring, he brings Jesus and she gets healed and then she gets up and she starts serving food. Like as if nothing happened. Like, it's, just, it's just so ordinary. Like, okay, no drama. Like let's get to it then. Let's get back to life. And that seems to be the nature of this. It happens and permeates our normal life. And so... Uh, We need to see everyday, ordinary aspects of our lives as coming under God's rule, his kingdom, right? His kingdom is always uh, in the ordinary. We don't need to go chasing an experience or an emotional high somewhere out there extra to the gospel and to ordinary life, that it actually moves in our everyday work and neighborhood and family and friends. The kingdom comes in washing the dishes, husbands. Can I get an amen from wives, right? Right? There is that reality that the reign of God shows up in the ordinary. The second thing is that the activity of God, the reign of God, shows up in Jesus. It's always in and through Jesus that we experience the kingdom. The reason Jesus can say the kingdom's in your midst is because he's in their midst. He's standing right before him, and the kingdom has a king. 
Right? If you're looking for the activity of God, it comes in his presence, and that is in Jesus. God's rule isn't merely goodwill towards others. Right? God's rule comes through his king, in relationship to his king. And so uh, we have to understand that we can't dissociate the kingdom, as all these things we do, from the king. Right? All these things we do, our actions that are just goodwill towards others, that's a story about what we accomplish. But the kingdom story is a story about what God's accomplishing. And he invites us to relate to Jesus, follow Jesus, and partner with him in what he's doing. So we look in the ordinary, we look for the activity of God in Jesus. And then I think this is fascinating. I, he says the kingdom is in the midst of you. Now, you here is not a singular verb or a noun, sorry, it's a plural noun. It's the kingdom is in the midst of you all, right? As if we were in Texas, right? So, heaven forbid, right? So, I'm a true Northwester. Like, that is, we don't need AC more than a month of the year, and bugs are not our friends. So, um, anyway, if you're from Texas, God bless you. Uh, but here we are, right? It's y'all. The kingdom's among you people, And so the kingdom isn't primarily all about you and what you experience personally and privately. No first century Jew would have ever heard the proclamation of the kingdom of God in your midst and thought, ah, yes, I can have a private, interior, existential experience of God, right? They would have gone, there's a revolution, right? They would have heard kingdom of God. That means there's another king besides Caesar. That means Herod's feeling threatened. That means there is a a, a grand social change afoot, right? They would not have heard this as prim- in primarily individualistic ways like we do as modern Western people. And we have to be careful to understand that God's activity always moves out relationally. And this is because that's who God is, right? God exists as Trinity. He's always existed in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, always relating love to one another. And they create out of that love to invite us in to share in that. And so we would always expect then God's reign and rule to move in relational terms. It's always relationally. It's always in that way. There's this Tolstoy book, you know, The Kingdom of God is in You. It's a misnomer. Like, great, Tolstoy is awesome. But it's the kingdom of God is among you. It's among a people. And so we look for the reign of God, the activity of God in the ordinary and in Jesus, and always in relationship. This is maybe a good moment to just pause and ask, where am I looking for God's activity in my life? Am I looking for God's activity in something spectacular? In that next thing out there, somewhere, like Five Will Goes West, somewhere out there, right? Or what, maybe it's not Five Will Goes West. I don't know. I'm revealing my age right now. Okay, so... Uh, no, or are you looking for God's activity in the ordinary, right in front of you, in the midst of your daily rhythms? You're looking for the activity of God in Jesus, always in relationship and in and through Jesus and being tied to him. You're looking at what God is up to relationally around you. This is how we pay attention to the activity of God in our lives. And so Jesus guards us from looking in the wrong place for God's activity and guides us towards looking for it in our midst. But the second thing he does in this passage is now he turns from talking to the Pharisees, the religious experts who are missing that God's reign and rule was right now, and he turns to his disciples 
who are likely to fall into the trap of thinking the kingdom's going to be all now, right? The, king, the Pharisees thought the kingdom's not here yet. Jesus says, no, it's here now. In your, in your midst, it's me, right? Now, the disciples are going to make the opposite error, and they're going to think it's all going to be here. Like, everything's going to happen right now. And Jesus says, actually, I need you to be prepared for what's going to happen because the kingdom's now and it's not yet. It's here and it's not here. And so what Jesus does next is he guards us from being unprepared for what God is going to do. Uh, Take a look at this with me, verse 22. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You're going to want to see me, and I'm not going to be there. Um, Then he says, and they they will say, look there or look here. Don't go follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, this is the way the Bible story works. If you're, if you're new to Christ, if you're, this whole church thing is brand new to you, if the Bible is a strange story for you, and it is, it involves some weird stuff, uh, let, let me just help tell you the story really quick to make sense of what Jesus is saying. The, the storyline kind of works like this. It begins with God creating, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, right? And so you have this this picture of a very good God making a good creation that he longs to share with his creatures, right? And so he makes this good creation, and he invites us in as his image bearers to do the stuff he would do with the stuff he shares with us. Very simple, right? Go rule, multiply, right? And so... We start in on that story, and then we decide, I actually want to call the shots on what's good and what's evil myself and not trust God's version for it. And so this leads to this story of corruption, where human nature is corrupted by this rebellion away from the living God. And God, in the midst of a rebellious people, still mercifully and graciously promises to set the creation right again. And he does it through this family, through this guy named Abraham. He says, it's going to be through your family, through your offspring, that I'll bless all the nations, those rebellious nations. And so through that story of Abraham and his people Israel, God brings about what he promised, that the Christ... Abraham's offspring, who would bless the nation, comes, and he does all that we were meant to do as image bearers. He bears the image of God perfectly, lives humanity out as it's meant to be lived out in perfect relationship with the Father in the Spirit. And then he absorbs into himself all that is wicked in us and pays uh, this immense weight of justice at the cross. And he promises that he'll send a counselor so that when he leaves, we'll be connected and tied to him, the Holy Spirit who comes and forms the church. This is our part of the story, where we as a church live as a sign and foretaste and instrument of that kingdom in anticipation of what God's going to do and consummating that story, bringing the story full circle, bringing about a new creation in which uh, all things are shalomed, right, in harmony. And so this is the story that Jesus is talking about when he says, you're going to long to see me. I'm not going to be here. You'll have the Spirit, 
That's what he talks about in John 14, 15, 16, and even 17. But what he is saying here is there's going to be a time where I'm gone and I'm going to come back. At the beginning of the book of Acts, after Jesus has said, hey, you're going to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, he vanishes in front of them. I don't know if you've read this story, but the scene's fascinating, right? It's like hanging out, and then like he just goes up. Physical body up into the heavens. He's covered by a cloud, and he apparently vanishes from our space, and now is like in God's space, and he's reigning, praying for you. Okay, that's weird, right? But that's what happens. And then everybody's stuck looking up in the sky because they're like, what just happened? And the angels show up, and they say, hey, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. He left physically. He's going to come back physically. And so that's what Jesus is describing. He's saying, there's going to be a time when I will come back. And so here's what he says about that event. First of all, in these verses, he's saying, it's going to be unmistakable. You're not going to miss it. It's going to be like lightning, which is verifiable, and everybody can see it from a long ways away. It's like, that's going to be the return of the Son of Man. Like The days of the Son of Man, when he comes, it's going to be like lightning. You won't miss it. Okay? Now, Here's what's interesting. If you've been around the church for long, there's a whole bunch of interesting folks who love to spend a lot of time trying to figure out when that's going to happen. All right? And what I think Jesus is saying is you don't need a a, a huge pantry or a bomb shelter um, or a chart of end times. What you need is to be faithful and make no mistake that when I come, you won't miss it. Okay? Like, that's what he's saying. Um, There's this... Whole, yeah, anyway, there's a whole bunch of folks who just really make a lot of this. And if you grew up in the 70s, this was a really big deal, especially if you were a Christian in the 70s. Like, there was, this was the thing. And so I would have to say here that what Jesus is saying is don't go speculating. There are going to be people who say here, there, over there. What he's saying is there's going to be t- people speculating about the return of the Son of Man. He says don't go after him. Don't waste your time there because when I return it will be unmistakable. Okay? Um, and that's, that's what he's, he's getting at here. No cause for speculation. There's more we could say about this, but what he promises is that he's going to prepare a place for us, this is John 14, so that we can be with him where he is. That is profound. So, the king will return, and you won't miss it. And the second thing then that he moves on to say is in verse 26. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. When Christ returns, what's it going to be like? Well, he describes it. It's like Noah's days. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, right? So there were foodies and there was family. Sounds like normal, normal life. Uh, Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. There was a market economy. There was construction happening. It's like Portland, right? It's food and rapid growth. Right? So just like normal, life as normal, that's when the sun will return. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day uh, when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, that's a fun passage, right? Now, here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. He reaches back into the story of Genesis, and he, he quotes these two passages where, on one hand, there's extreme judgment, and there's also salvation. Okay? 
It's talking about both realities. There will be a day, Jesus is saying, when every human gives account. Every human will have to be accountable to the judgment of God. This is a happy face or sad face moment for you, right? Like, how are we feeling right now? What's interesting, again, is that this is normal life, and then the sun is revealed, okay? Regular life is happening, but in the case of both, there's judgment against human evil and all kinds of wickedness, and a flood destroys, and a fire destroys, so will it be on this day of the Son of Man. There's going to be this judgment. Now, I have to be fully honest with you here. I don't reject any of this. I don't disagree with any of it, but I am uncomfortable with it. Are you feeling uncomfortable with this passage and this idea of a coming judgment? I I think it's an uncomfortable reality for us as modern Western people. But I think our discomfort, I think our discomfort with the idea of a final judgment says more about our cultural moment than I think it says about God's character, and here's why. I think when people want to reject the idea of a final accounting, a final judgment, right? it, it reveals a bias. Right? It reveals uh, a story where we are not living under oppression and injustice. Right? That, that my discomfort with judgment says more about what I have not yet experienced in my life. Right? I've experienced people wronging me and being mean to me, stealing my stuff, and oh yeah, sure. But I've been a jerk too, so I can overlook some of that. But you know what I haven't experienced? I haven't experienced my village getting shelled by artillery. I haven't experienced having to leave my home because there are men there who want to kill me or my family. I haven't starved. I haven't had to try to make it across an ocean to get to safety. I know some people who have. And here's the deal. When you live under injustice and oppression... A final judgment is good news, right? Because you're sitting there going, my world is messed up. This world is messed up. And somebody needs to answer for what they've done to my community and my family. And so an idea of judgment is actually really, really good news when you've lived under oppression. I think our discomfort with judgment reveals more about our place of privilege, right? We're biased towards privilege. When you think you've got everything that you need and there isn't really a threat to it, Nobody's trying to take it from you. Judgment isn't all that important. Right? And so, I would just recommend to you, if you're somebody who says, this is why I reject Christianity, because it's an idea of judgment, I would say, let's turn the lens on ourselves for a second. Let's look at our own biases and try to uncover maybe how we have blind spots culturally that miss the need for justice. Because when I say I want to reject judgment, I'm kind of saying I'm willing to be calloused to those who are constantly wronged. That I have no feeling for them. <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of gnarly. So we need to just be aware of this as we face judgment passages. But Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be a day when all human evil is going to be dealt with. There will be a day. And how is this good news? How is this part of a kingdom story that is good news? How can we have a just judgment and at the same time right, come out the other side of that? How can we have the destruction of evil without being destroyed ourselves? 
This is what Jesus is going to answer for us. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. He says this. Whoever, oh, sorry. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left, and there will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thanks, Jesus. That's helpful. Like, what are you saying? You know, what kind of picture is Jesus painting with this scene? I think he's painting a picture of a crisis. I think he's painting a picture of a crisis where our, our allegiance is tested. Lot's wife is a great example, right? He's saying, look, if you're up on the roof and you've got a bunch of stuff, don't run to your stuff. If you're out in the field, don't run back to your comfort. Remember Lot's wife? And if you don't remember Lot's wife... She is part of the Genesis story where Lot lives in this corrupt city called Sodom, who Ezekiel, the prophet, says their sin was in hospitality, that their problem was injustice, that they had oppressed the poor, disregarded the hungry. Whew, all right, all right. So they get, like, flamed, right? And there's a deliverance, like, where Lot and his family are led out on a journey to somewhere they don't yet know, and Lot's wife turns around. She looks back and poof, she's a pillar of salt. Whew, okay, that's kind of gnarly. What's that an image of? Why does Jesus say, remember Lot's wife? Because he's saying, look, at the crisis, she had a divided heart. In the crisis, she turned back to what was familiar. Right? And, and then we're told by Jesus in this passage that there's going to be this separation. This passage, by the way, right, the one is left, the other is taken this, this is, shows up in Matthew 24 as well, same language. And there's a whole lot um, of, I think, probably misrepresentation of this, this passage. Um, you know, uh, I don't have time to show you a Nicolas Cage clip uh, here, but there's a huge series, right, of books built on this, like these verses, right? Like the assumption here is that like being left behind is bad and being taken is good. Or something. And that has to do with like a precursor or a preview to Jesus returning. Well, Jesus is saying, at this point, I'm going to return and there's going to be a separation. Right? He's not saying that's a preview. He's saying that's part of the deal. Separation's a part of the deal of the Son of Man's return. And this is what every scholar has said. He said there, it is completely inconclusive whether or not being taken is good or being taken is bad. Right? We don't know. We, just, we don't know. Nobody, no, no expert actually can tell you whether or not it's meant good or bad. It could be both. And in fact, in Matthew's version of this, this conversation, it's more likely bad to be taken because the, the reference has to do with A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple and the Romans coming in and taking people as prisoner. Right? So you want to be left behind, biblically. Right? Just, just saying. All right. Um, so how do we deal with this separation, with this judgment? How do we face this, and how is this good news? How can we face judgment here? I think what Jesus is saying in the middle of this passage is you face judgment through surrender. 
The only way to stand is to surrender. The only way you can face a final accounting is if you are willing to be accountable now. That is when you're willing to give up your own independence from God. Right? When you're willing to actually lay down your autonomy, you'll actually be able to stand in judgment. This might look all kinds of ways. We try to get autonomy from God. We try to get independent from God through our immorality, doing whatever we want. We also try to get away from God through our morality so often, where we try to perform for God so we don't actually have to be vulnerable and need and receive from him. Right? It's our way of making ourselves. And the point is, either way, we seek to preserve our own self. And Jesus says, whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it. And that word for life isn't bios, like our physical life. The word is the word we get for psyche, like self. Okay? And so what Jesus is saying is, if you're trying to preserve your own sense of self, you will lose it. But if you lose yourself, you will find it. Right? In chapter 9, he says, if you lose it for me, right? for my sake. And when we try to build a self, an identity apart from God, we will ultimately lose it because the self we make cannot stand in judgment because the selves we always make are selfish. But when we seek, uh, you know, quit trying to preserve our own self, right? but instead right, actually lose and give up on our efforts of self-preservation, we will find a self God has preserved for us that will not... Uh, be taken away, and that can stand in judgment. Here's how it works, and Jesus says this brilliantly. Take a look at the text with me. The disciples ask, where, or, yeah, where, Lord, right? All of this judgment stuff, and then where, Lord? And he says, where the corpses, the vultures will gather. Like, thanks be to God. What? Right? And so I think he's, he's being cryptic. In Matthew's account, this is actually a statement that has to do with the obviousness of the judgment. But here in Luke, it's a far more gruesome kind of statement. He says, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Now, here's what I think is fascinating. The word for vulture is also the same word for eagle. And it would be well known within the context of Jesus' hearers that the imperial Roman symbol is what? It's an eagle, right? And the reality is, within a matter of about a week and a half, Jesus is going to be little more than a corpse surrounded by eagles. He's going to be surrounded by Roman legionnaires who will be mocking his claim to be the king of Israel, who will have beaten him, and who will violate his mangled body. And so, in a sense, I believe what's happening here is that Jesus is saying something very profound. They say, where will this judgment occur, Lord? Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. I think he's saying it's going to take place at the cross. I think he's saying the judgment is going to take place on me. The location of the judgment of God is going to be And so how do we stand in that judgment? How do we deal with that final accounting? We stand because he stood in our place. 
We can stand because he's already taken sin into himself. And he's borne the just reward of sin, which is death. And he says, if you quit playing at trying to preserve yourself by your own effort and instead allow what I've done to preserve yourself, you will have a self that cannot be taken. Right? Because what I've done is I've given you me. I've stood in your place and I now offer you my life. You'll have a self and an identity that's stable. It's anchored in the acceptance and the love of the Father. It's a self that's invited into the communion that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying there's no work, no effort, no moral vigor that can achieve for you in the final judgment what Jesus has achieved for you where you can actually stand because he stood in your place. So we look for the reign of God, the activity of God in and through Jesus in the ordinary and the relational. And we see how we can live prepared for what God is going to do by trusting in what God has done, by trusting in the just judge who's been judged in our place. No other judge is like this one. No other judge is this good. There's this great question as we come to a close here. There's this great um, uh, question-answer um, uh, form of discipleship from the, uh, the age of the Reformation called the Heidelberg Catechism. And question 52 asks this, What comfort is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? Now, this is backwards to us culturally, right? We go, what horror is it to you that Christ is going to come back and judge the living and the dead? But the question is, what comfort? What comfort is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? And this is the answer. In all distress, in all persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself in the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. And so we celebrate that reality at the table. Right? In a moment, uh, we'll, we'll continue to sing and, and worship God through song. But there's this moment where we're, we're invited to the table God has prepared a place for you. And we celebrate that regularly by coming to the table and saying, I lean on what you have prepared for me. I can be prepared for what you're going to do because you have already prepared a place for me. It's a space where when we stand in that space, we can stand against any inner critic, against any outer challenge. Right? To be unprepared for what God's going to do is to reject what he's prepared for you. But to embrace all that he's done to preserve you is total joy and life and freedom. Let's pray.